On Life by Percy Bysshe Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and the world, or whatever we call that which we are and feel, is an astonishing thing. The mist of familiarity obscures from us the wonder of our being. We are struck with admiration at some of its transient modifications, but it is itself the great miracle. What are changes of empires, the wreck of dynasties, with the opinions which supported them? What is the birth and the extinction of religious and of political systems to life? What are the revolutions of the globe which we inhabit, and the operations of the elements of which it is composed, compared with life? What is the universe of stars and suns, of which this inhabited earth is one, and their motions and their destiny, compared with life? Life, the great miracle, we admire not, because it is so miraculous. It is well that we are thus shielded by the familiarity of what is at once so certain and so unfathomable, from an astonishment which would otherwise absorb and overawe the functions of that which is its object. If any artist, I do not say had executed, but had merely conceived in his mind the system of the sun and the stars and planets, they not existing, and had painted to us in words or upon canvas the spectacle now afforded by the nightly cope of heaven, and illustrated it by the wisdom of astronomy, great would be our admiration. Or had he imagined the scenery of this earth, the mountains, the seas, and the rivers, the grass and the flowers, and the variety of the forms and masses of the leaves of the woods, and the colors which attend the setting and the rising sun, and the hues of the atmosphere, turbid or serene, these things not before existing. Truly we should have been astonished, and it would not have been a vain boast to have said of such a man, Non merita, non medi creatore, se non idio ed il poeta. But now these things are looked on with little wonder, and to be conscious of them, with intense delight, is esteemed to be the distinguishing mark of a refined and extraordinary person. The multitude of men care not for them. It is thus with life, that which includes all. What is life? Thoughts and feelings arise, with or without our will, and we employ words to express them. We are born, and our birth is unremembered, and our infancy remembered but in fragments. We live on, and in living we lose the apprehension of life. How vain is it to think that words can penetrate the mystery of our being? Rightly used, they may make evident our ignorance to ourselves, and this is much. For what are we? Whence do we come? And whither do we go? Is birth the commencement? Is death the conclusion of our being? What is birth and death? The most refined abstractions of logic conduct to a view of life which, though startling to the apprehension, is in fact that which the habitual sense of its repeated combinations has extinguished in us. It strips, as it were, the painted curtain from this scene of things. I confess that I am one of those who are unable to refuse my assent to the conclusions of those philosophers who assert that nothing exists, but as it is perceived. It is a decision against which all our persuasion struggle, and we must be long convicted before we can be convinced that the solid universe of external things is such stuff as dreams are made of. 
the shocking absurdities of the popular philosophy of mind and matter, its fatal consequences in morals, and their violent dogmatism concerning the source of all things, had early conducted me to materialism. This materialism is a seducing system to young and superficial minds. It allows its disciples to talk, and dispenses them from thinking. But I was discontented with such a view of things as it afforded. Man is a being of high aspirations, looking both before and after, whose thoughts wander through eternity, disclaiming alliance with transience and decay, incapable of imagining to himself annihilation, existing but in the future and the past, being not what he is, but what he has been and shall be. Whatever may be his true and final destination, there is a spirit within him at enmity with nothingness and dissolution. This is the character of all life and being. Each is at once the center and the circumference, the point to which all things are referred, and the line in which all things are contained. Such contemplations as these, materialism and the popular philosophy of mind and matter alike forbid, they are only consistent with the intellectual system. It is absurd to enter into a long recapitulation of arguments sufficiently familiar to those inquiring minds, whom alone a writer on abstruse subjects can be conceived to address. Perhaps the most clear and vigorous statement of the intellectual system is to be found in Sir William Drummond's Academical Questions. After such an exposition, it would be idle to translate into other words what could only lose its energy and fitness by the change. Examined point by point and word by word, the most discriminating intellects have been able to discern no train of thoughts in the process of reasoning which does not conduct inevitably to the conclusion which has been stated. What follows from the admission? It establishes no new truth. It gives us no additional insight into our hidden nature, neither its action nor itself. Philosophy, impatient as it may be to build, has much work yet remaining, as pioneer for the overgrowth of ages. It makes one step towards this object. It destroys error and the roots of error. It leaves what it is too often the duty of the reformer in political and ethical questions to leave, a vacancy. It reduces the mind to that freedom in which it would have acted, before the misuse of words and signs, the instruments of its own creation. By signs I would be understood in a wide sense, including what is properly meant by that term, and what I peculiarly mean. In this latter sense, almost all familiar objects are signs, standing not for themselves, but for others, and their capacity of suggesting one thought which shall lead to a train of thoughts. Our whole life is thus an education of error. Let us recollect our sensations as children. What a distinct and intense apprehension had we of the world and of ourselves! Many of the circumstances of social life were then important to us which are no longer so. But that is not the point of comparison on which I mean to insist. We less habitually distinguished all that we saw and felt from ourselves. They seemed, as it were, to constitute one mass. There are some persons who, in this respect, are always children. Those who are subject to the state called reverie feel as if their nature were dissolved into the surrounding universe, or as if the surrounding universe were absorbed into their being. 
they are conscious of no distinction and these are states which precede or accompany or follow an unusually intense and vivid apprehension of life as men grow up this power commonly decays and they become mechanical and habitual agents thus feelings and then reasonings are the combined result of a multitude of entangled thoughts and of a series of what are called impressions planted by reiteration the view of life presented by the most refined deductions of the intellectual philosophy is that of unity nothing exists but as it is perceived the difference is merely nominal between those two classes of thought which are vulgarly distinguished by the names of ideas and of external objects pursuing the same thread of reasoning the existence of distinct individual minds similar to that which is employed in now questioning its own nature is likewise found to be a delusion the words i you they are not signs of any actual difference subsisting between the assemblage of thoughts thus indicated but are merely marks employed to denote the different modifications of the one mind let it not be supposed that this doctrine conducts to the monstrous presumption that i the person who now write and think am that one mind i am but a portion of it the words i and you and they are grammatical devices invented simply for arrangement and totally devoid of the intense and exclusive sense usually attached to them it is difficult to find terms adequate to express so subtle a conception as that to which the intellectual philosophy has conducted us we are on that verge where words abandon us and what wonder if we grow dizzy to look down the dark abyss of how little we know the relations of things remain unchanged by whatever system by the word things is to be understood any object of thought that is any thought upon which any other thought is employed with an apprehension of distinction the relations of these remain unchanged and such is the material of our knowledge what is the cause of life that is how was it produced or what agencies distinct from life have acted or act upon life all recorded generations of mankind have weariedly busied themselves in inventing answers to this question and the result has been religion yet that the basis of all things cannot be as the popular philosophy alleges mind is sufficiently evident mind as far as we have any experience of its properties and beyond that experience how vain is argument cannot create it can only perceive it is said also to be the cause but cause is only a word expressing a certain state of the human mind with regard to the manner in which two thoughts are apprehended to be related to each other if any one desires to know how unsatisfactorily the popular philosophy employs itself upon this great question they need only impartially reflect upon the manner in which thoughts develop themselves in their minds it is infinitely improbable that the cause of mind that is of existence is similar to mind end of on life by percy bysshe shelley